in a sense, I think it's more comforting that you have appellate judges dealing with cases where things have gone wrong, allowing appeals and having things retried properly, than the alternative, which is a very deferential approach to first instance decision making. Hello and welcome to the Resolution podcast, Joe and Chris. In this episode, we are going to discuss appeals, both of financial remedy cases and Children Act cases. And we're very helped by having you two along to discuss those with us. So, Joe, could you introduce yourself, first of all? Yes, I can. Hi, I'm I'm Joe Rayner. I'm a barrister at uh, QEB. I am a specialist financial remedy practitioner. So pretty much all of my work now is, is matrimonial finance um, and has been for quite some time. Outside of work, I, I do more work based things, which is a bit boring. I edit at a glance and I, I also edit a, doc, a journal called the Financial Remedies Journal, which it does what it says on the tin. Um, and when I'm not doing this, I ride my bike and I try and discipline my extremely badly behaved cat. Oh, I think you're our first guest who's given us any insight into their personal life. So, Chris, can you introduce yourself both professionally and give us some insight into your personal life as well? Well, on a, on a personal level, as a declaration of uh, of interest, obviously, Anita and I are married. So taming cats is obviously something we try and do jointly. Professionally, I'm specialist children barrister at 4PB. I cover a full range of public and private matters. And in terms of this particular podcast theme, deal reasonably frequently with appeals, both in the High Court and in the Court of Appeal. As a, as a fairly busy practitioner, though, and I, I tend to think I've got a reasonably good grasp of what I'm doing, both on financial cases and children cases, but the, the place where I suddenly exit my comfort zone is when the subject of appeals come up. And I guess that's because for lots of us, there's something uh, that happens fairly infrequently and you're either the appellant or on the receiving end. When you when you get papers in and the question comes up, what well, what is it that you're looking for when when thinking is is this a, a case that ought to be appealed? Maybe Joe first on a sort of from a financial point of view. Yeah, well, well thank you. So so I, I think the question is when you get papers, how do you how do you decide whether the decision is wrong or how do you assess whether the decision is wrong so as as to to give any prospects an appeal? I apologise in advance because. My answer to this, it, it's a bit pompous and a bit um, analytical, but it's it's probably, in my view, it's the most useful way of looking at this. It's to try and divide these kind of cases up into three categories and to look at them in a category-specific way. Uh, and the way I do it is, I'd say the first, it's three categories, I'd say. The first is, are you trying to appeal a primary factual finding? Are you looking to to impeach a finding of fact? And all of us know straight off the bat that that's a very, very difficult thing to do. I mean, we'll probably come back to the very famous uh, judgment of of, uh, Hoffman in Biogen. But we know that specific findings of fact by a trial judge, they're very, very hard to impeach. So that's the first category of case I'd think about. The other two categories are less obvious. And I'll tell you what they are, and then I'll, I'll tell you how I distinguish them. The first is what you call an evaluative determination. And the second is an exercise of discretion. So those are the the other categories. Now, 
in my experience, most people don't really distinguish between those two things. They just think that they were, were more or less the same. And, and sadly, I say sadly, that's about unfair, the, the best piece of writing that, that analyzes what the difference is between these two things is a lecture that Mr. Justice Mostyn did to the Hong Kong Family Law Association in 2019. Uh, the reference to that lecture might be put in the lecture notes. I would really recommend reading it because it's a fantastic read and it's the most lucid analysis of how to pull apart what these two things are, especially in the context of appeal. But I'll have a go at it now. What's evaluative decision-making? Evaluative decision-making, it's the formation of a value judgment, a qualitative decision, once your conclusions of primary fact have been made. So you reach your findings of fact, and then you use those findings of fact, you weigh them, you weigh these various factors, and you use that to determine the correct result in relation to something. That's evaluative decision-making. What's a discretionary assessment? Lots of people would think it's just the complete same thing as evaluative decision-making. It's it's slightly different. It's selecting from a range of choices, none of which can be said to be right or wrong. Or rather, probably a better way of putting it is none of which can be said to be more right or more wrong than another. So best way of looking at this is let's go through some examples in the context of financial remedy cases. Examples of evaluative decision making, anything that's a yes, no binary, anything that's a binary, it's going to be an evaluative exercise. Assessing a future earning capacity. That's a classic example. That's weighing up evidence and then reaching a conclusion on the balance of probabilities. So that's evaluative decision making. Assessing the existence, the extent of non-disclosure. Again, you're weighing up evidence. You're drawing the conclusions that you can. Assessing the existence, the extent of non-matrimonial property. Same thing again. I know it's a bit, bit ridiculous. None of us get it in our cases, but special contribution. That's another classic example, although that's not applicable to, to any of the cases likely to come across most of our desks. What about discretionary decision making? I, I think there's only really one, one example, or rather one example in two parts. And Mr. Justice Mostyn is of the same view. He thinks the only place where true discretion still exists is the assessment of need. And that's the quantitative assessment of need. So the examples are, the two examples are maintenance quantum. There'll be a bracket of possible figures, but any figure in that bracket can't really be said to be more wrong or more right than another. They're all right. And then figures outside the bracket are wrong. Not maintenance term. Term of maintenance, not discretionary. That's more evaluative because you are weighing up evidence. You're making such findings as you can as to the progression towards independence. And you're setting your term on that basis. So it's maintenance quantum that's the discretionary bit. And then the other classic is quantum of a rehousing fund within a bracket. Again, there's going to be a bracket. But within that bracket, difficult to say that any one figure is more right than another. So so that's discretionary decision making. Um, Where does all this come to? I think you can put them in a hierarchy. You can put them in a hierarchy. So we've already done findings of fact. In my view, that's the hardest. That's the hardest to appeal. And Again, all you need to do is go back and look at that Biogen case and also what's said by Lord Hoffman and Piglowski. Plenty of material there for, for everyone to digest. Most of that's pretty well known. The second hardest thing, I think, to impeach is an exercise of discretion. Because what you've got to show is that the, the conclusion reached was outside of the discretionary bracket. Now, if, if you put yourselves in the shoes of the lawyer advising the client, 
you've got to give a view on what that bracket is. And if you're advising someone on appeal, and as we'll come on to later, I'm sure there are cost consequences in appeals if you lose, you've got to be really conservative about that. So you've got to assess the bracket as widely as you can before you say, well, that number, it's so badly wrong, it's outside the bracket. They couldn't possibly have reached that. But within that bracket, you're not going to win on an appeal, even if you think the number is a bit toppy or a bit on the mean side. So I'd say that's second in line. The softest target, evaluative decision-making. And that's where you can point to specific examples. You can say, look, this primary fact, it was found, but it wasn't given proper weight in the balance. No reasonable judge could have given this factor the weight they did in reaching the evaluative conclusion they did. Now, it's still hard. It's still hard. All appeals in financial remedies are are pretty hard, in my view. But I think evaluative decision making is probably the softest target out of those three. Uh, Last thing to deal with, of course, there's a completely separate um, ground for appeal, which is procedural irregularity. Uh, probably say more, a bit more about that later, but all I'd say now is that it has to leap off the page. It has to be pretty bad. And I'll come back to this probably later in the podcast. I've recently done an appeal on serious procedural irregularity. And it was one of those cases where as you read the transcript of the appeal, the, the points were just leaping off the page. You were thinking, good God, this is absolutely incredible cumulatively this is bad enough so that we can can um, mount a reasonable appeal on on this basis so so that's probably how I'd, I'd go about looking at it dividing it into those three buckets and then ranking it on that basis and, and disciplining your approach in that way so chris what, what what about in the world of children law is it is, is it similar or or very different well, I mean, a number of the principles are obviously common across different practice areas. And um, what Joe has really helpfully set out is, is equally applicable in terms of the types of decisions um, that one comes across. I suppose with with children cases, the, the emphasis, particularly since we be in the Supreme Court, has been to conceptualise the majority of judicial decisions as being evaluative as opposed to discretionary. And I think that has led over the last decade or so, to have a less uh, deferential approach to um, the way in which those decisions might be challenged on appeal. But obviously, in many children cases, particularly in the public realm, or if you're dealing with serious allegations of abuse between parents, then um, what Joe has referred to in relation to the, the difficulties of challenging primary findings of fact will very much apply. I, I suppose for for me, the the big distinction that Joe hasn't touched on is where you're considering an appeal in a case that you have been involved in or an appeal which is coming to you fresh. And I think there are obviously very significant differences in the way you need to approach them. If it's a case you've been involved in, then you'll obviously have lived, breathed and experienced everything that's gone on at the first instance hearing or in the appeal below. And you, in that case, have to be conscious of wanting to take a step back to make sure that you're not being swept up in a particular view of the case and are trying to take that more objective approach to whether um, the judge's decision, even if it's one you weren't advocating for clearly or one that you might not agree with completely, is outside of that bracket of decisions that could legitimately have been reached either as conclusions on the evidence or uh, as as a welfare outcome following the evaluative process. In appeals that are coming to you that you haven't been involved in, the difficulty is often to get a hook and a way in to understand properly what's happened at first instance. And where Joe raised the question of serious procedural irregularities is, is, is a classic example of that. 
it's often very difficult to know whether something's been raised, how something's been raised. And if it hasn't been raised, that can obviously pose real significant challenges if you're picking it up later as a as a new advocate. So I think in balancing it, you've generally got to try to take quite a, a distance, detached and objective view as to the weight of the evidence that was received. Consider uh, the terms of the judgment, how it's been approached by the judge, whether they've considered the evidence fully uh, and whether there's a hook by which you can you can challenge it. But as Joe says, appeals are not straightforward. Losing at first instance um, does create a, a serious barrier to, to achieving the outcome that your client is wanting. Uh, and no one wants to enter into an appeal process where you're likely to be knocked back because it's either going to be time consuming or, in the worst case scenario, costly and, and unnecessary. I'd actually just I, I completely agree with with all of that insofar as it applies to both categories. But that particular point that, that Chris made about what what do you do when you inherit a case and you look at it and you think, well, there is something glaringly wrong with this, but it's a point that wasn't raised at first instance. I agree that that throws up some real difficulties some of the time because I I, I remember this from a while ago, but I'll be correct if I'm wrong. I mean the Financial remedies, it's a quasi-inquisitorial jurisdiction. So the court has a, a, a freestanding statutory duty to consider all, all of the, the factors of the case. Um, and quite often, some relevant factors won't be picked up on by advocates at, at trial or earlier in the case, but you might spot them on appeal. And it, it, that's a really difficult position in where you realise that you might have to run with something that wasn't properly argued below, but nonetheless, you think it is such a, a, a serious um defect that it needs to be raised as a standalone appeal ground i agree that's that's a that's a tricky one i i mean i i do think as well that the the point joe's making is is right and and is often why on a practitioner level it can occasionally be worth having a second pair of eyes to look at a case because a, a fresh pair of eyes will have much less of a personal uh, involvement in, in what's happened at first instance. There may be points that are uncomfortable to raise because they've not been raised at first instance. And sometimes having somebody come in to look at a case fresh actually gives you a wider opportunity to consider whether the approach taken has been right or wrong. And very much it's the same in Children Act cases, um, particularly appeals that have arisen from practice direction 12J, um, cases that are concerning uh, adoption outcomes for children. There is such a heavy imperative on the court making the right decision that some of the process arguments about matters not having been raised are sometimes secondary. If at its core there has been a significant point missed or a significant error made, then you as an advocate coming in on an appeal to consider papers fresh can sometimes be in a very powerful position to to make that case out in a way that is perhaps more difficult to do if you've been involved in, in the first instance case. What has been the impact of more litigants representing themselves on appeal? I mean, from from considering it on a on a public law angle, um, often the availability of non means non merits um, funding does reduce the the frequency of, of litigants in person in, in in the public law arena. But there is an interesting example where, in fact, the law has where the, the provision has recently changed, which relates to um, proceedings under the Adoption and Children Act, where a recent change has meant that parents may well now be entitled to public funding to resist those applications where they're made for for adoption after a child is placed. 
And what is interesting is that the absence of representatives for parents and a lack of familiarity with the Adoption and Children Act as compared to the Children Act 1989, which judges and practitioners are much more familiar with, means you you often have um, decisions that are taken rapidly by judges without complete information and with parents uh, representing themselves. And my experience is that when you have a case of that sort come across your desk, it is often very surprising exactly what has happened and and what the process has been that's been followed. And I think it does show that courts do benefit from having representatives before them in in terms of framing some of these issues, but also in avoiding some of these pitfalls that can arise from judges who are busy, who are well-meaning, who are trying to achieve good outcomes for families, for children, uh, and so on, but are doing it in a way that occasionally crosses the line. And so I I think it's certainly an issue that you have to be very cautious of when someone's approaching you. You can obviously approach these things with with a a slightly wary eye because a a litigant in person who has been burnt at first instance may well be very invested in a decision and very upset about it. But at its core, again, you have to take that detached view. They may well be right. They may have they may have experienced something that is simply unsustainable and unacceptable. Or it may be that that they're simply very upset about a decision that was perfectly reasonable. And, and you, as the advocate considering and advising on appeal, have to be able to try and approach those things carefully to, to distinguish between the two. But certainly, when you look at appeals that are brought by litigants in person, and this, this applies across jurisdictions, it is often the case that when judges are reviewing those appeals that are put in, the appeal may not be framed in a way that would necessarily have been how a a lawyer would frame it. But when a judge looks at the case and High Court judges and Court of Appeal judges look at these cases with a careful eye and with a focused eye on where these decision-making processes can go wrong, there are often really important and significant issues that they can clarify and, and, and become the focus on on an appeal. And in those circumstances, it's often the case that High Court judges or Court of Appeal judges will try and actively encourage those litigants in person to seek um, the kind of free representation that you can get from a service like Advocate or there's, there are specialist schemes in the High Court and Court of Appeal that ensure or try to ensure that just because somebody is representing themselves doesn't mean that an important and significant and perhaps complex point of law is missed on an appeal. Taking what was Chris was saying and, and running with it a bit, uh, this this might be a reason why these kind of things don't tend to come to financial remedy advocates quite so much. If you have two litigants in person doing a financial remedies trial and a determination is made, they've got 21 days to get in their appeal grounds, which will then be permission triaged. A lot of litigants in person, even if, as, say, as Chris says, advised by a trial judge, well, maybe you want to go and, and speak to a, an, an advisor they won't necessarily know how difficult the task in front of them is. And they've got the most difficult piece of paperwork to do, which is the grounds of appeal, which has to to express to the triaging permission judge why this decision was quite so badly wrong that it justifies an appeal. And in financial remedies, perhaps it's not quite the same as as with uh, children law. It won't come to an appeal judge with a neat net effect schedule showing quantitatively why the decision was wrong if a litigant in person has done it. More likely, it's a a kind of narrative explanation 
it's quite difficult for a permission judge to look at that or to look at a document done by a litigant in person and think, well, yes, that that floats past the permission test. So it might well be that lots of litigants in person do their permission applications or get their appeal grounds in and don't get granted permission. And had they been granted permission, they might have then gone on and got an advocate to represent them later. But it might be that a lot of litigant in person appeals die at that point. I can give you some statistics in Sussex and Surrey in relation to financial remedy cases. So, and these are from his honour judge Farquhar, who, you know, is the lead judge in that area. And he was saying that there's probably about 40 applications for permission to appeal per year in the area. And he thought probably about 30% get permission and probably about half of those succeed. So, The figures aren't enormous, but he also identified that a lot of those are from litigants in person. And I suppose this is a convenient point to touch on the fact that some appeals, financial remedy appeals now will be will be dealt with without an oral hearing. So that change comes into place on the on the 6th of April and will be in respect of appeals which are assessed on the papers as having being totally without merit which was I think a recommendation from the rules committee and resolution commented it on that okay all right so we we mentioned briefly then the different tribunals you might come in in front of in respect of your appeal obviously according to where it was heard at first instance so Chris what what do you say um, or do you say has been the impact of high court judges hearing more appeals and I suppose in addition to that should you should you change your appeal advocacy written or oral as a result of the level of tribunal you're in front of? Yes I suppose breaking it down it's important to clarify the different routes of appeal that that apply in public and private law children cases because in public law cases um, anything that is heard by a circuit judge um, the route of appeal is to the Court of Appeal and not to the High Court. The change that was made a few years ago now was that in private law cases, and partly this was because the Court of Appeal was being overwhelmed and I think probably is still very highly burdened with family law cases, but there was a decision taken that private law appeals, the route from a circuit judge or recorder should then be an appeal to a High Court judge. Now there are provisions that mean that appeals can be reallocated once permission is given from a High Court judge upwards if if necessary. But the principal focus for private law appeals from a circuit judge is to the High Court. I think for me, the, the impact has been especially substantial in dealing with cases of domestic abuse and the application of practice direction 12J. And in part, I think that's informed by the fact that high court judges have a split role. They are hearing cases at first instance, but they are also sitting uh, on appeal in in inappropriate cases. And I think that has meant that they have had a closer focus on the procedural requirements of those hearings, but are also much more closely uh, and, and more comprehensively aware of the difficulties and the practicalities of of how those cases are tried at first instance. So for me, one of the things that's been striking, given that um, high court judges hearing appeals is, if not totally novel, but relatively new, is that um, 
really important decisions have come down from Mrs. Justice Knowles, from Mrs. Justice Judd, from Mrs. Justice Morgan, which have emphasised some of those core procedural requirements, the way in which you approach issues of vulnerability, of special measures, how that impacts on a fact-finding process. And it's been interesting for me that the Court of Appeal took up the case of, of HN, gave important um, guidance on how um, fact-finding hearings should be conducted in the case of, of uh, where there are allegations of, of serious domestic abuse. But following on from the decision in, in HN, a number of appeals in the High Court from the judges I've mentioned have developed and extended how that applies in practice. And so that dynamic between the Court of Appeal taking cases relatively rarely in, in the private law arena, but trying to do so in a way that helps to shape how those allegations are tried, is then applied in a much more focused way in appeals that are heard by High Court judges. So I, I, I think it's been a really interesting dynamic to see how that's evolved. In terms of treating appeals differently, I don't think as a principled matter you should be um, dealing with appeals differently depending on which tier and tribunal there are uh, th that you're dealing with. You obviously have to be aware of what your route of appeal is and what that's going to mean. The Court of Appeal obviously take up fewer cases. There are greater demands on, on fewer judges. And, and so um, the relative importance of, of appeals and, and the need to, to make that case out is, is going to be a particularly searching one. But as a, as a fundamental starting point, the principles are the same, whether you're appealing from a decision of magistrates or appealing the decision of a high court judge or indeed appealing the decision of the Court of Appeal. So I, I think you would try and approach each of them with the same rigour I might just tag on to the back of Chris's answer and, and deal with it at slightly out of turn, uh, because one of the points Chris made, I, I completely agree with and would seize upon quite enthusiastically insofar as it applies to financial remedies. One of the big upsides of having high court judges dealing with financial remedy appeals is those appeals are likely to, well, they, they will be from decisions of circuit judges and it's therefore more likely that the decision under appeal is going to have a fact pattern that's more familiar to the vast majority of the people in this country. A massive criticism levelled at most of the case law in financial remedy, in, in the, pretty much all of it at high court level and court appeal level, is concerned with the so-called big money cases, the very big money cases, the ultra big money cases, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it deals with these principles that are applicable to, to smaller money cases in a way that's completely detached from the reality of the facts of those cases. So, for example, non-matrimonial property arguments look very different when the pot is 550 million. Um, arguments about contributions, special contributions, look very different when someone is a world famous artist or, or the inventor of some fantastic product. And those are just not the kind of arguments that most of the time surface in the cases that we do day in, day out. So when you get appeals in front of high court judges, it's more likely that they'll be dealing with facts or procedural issues of the type that practitioners will deal with more frequently day to day. And that's useful for everyone. It's useful for practitioners because we've got more practicable guidance. It's useful for lay people because they can see cases that are much closer to the kind of cases that will apply to their own lives. I'd say this also applies to this new drive um, that's going on to, to encourage the judiciary to publish more of their case law. 
And we're seeing lots more publication of first instance decisions at circuit judge level. I know his honour Judge Hess, um, lots of other judges at first instance are publishing much more of their decisions. Same for appeal decisions. So I think all in all, that's a really good thing. That's a real upside to the high court judges listening to more appeals. Uh, Chris, if you might chip in on this point, actually. Well, I, I mean, I, I think it's also worth remembering that, that I mean, we, we've been talking about the difference in in direction as uh, in in allocation as between the High Court and, and and the Court of Appeal, but an enormous number of appeals in the children arena, and I'm sure financial remedies are, are are actually being heard by circuit judges uh, as well. And, and I think certainly when I started practicing, there was a slightly glib assumption that that your your circuit judges would would be protective of, of judges in their own court. My experience is that as, as with high court judges, circuit judges who are hearing appeals, partly informed by the fact that they're hearing so many cases and they're so much closer to it, are incredibly astute to where issues have arisen and where cases have gone awry and approach these things in an incredibly rigorous fashion. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure that applies equally across the board in, in financial cases as well, because I'm sure, as as with the big money cases not, not being the, the be-all and end-all, and, and a lot of children cases are heard by magistrates, a lot of children cases are heard by the district bench as well. And so the route of appeal is not is not to a high court judge, it's to circuit judges who are balancing a busy first instance practice with with dealing with appellate jurisdiction as well uh, and again i think there can be a really important a- aspect that they bring to bear of of just having a, a much keener awareness of the practical reality of of what goes on in a courtroom at all levels uh, yeah i completely agree with that I, I mean i was just about to say in the sphere of financial remedies nearly all appeals that we'll be dealing with are to judges of circuit judge level because appeals from district judges, which makes up the majority of the judiciary hearing financial remedy cases, goes to judges of circuit judge level. They used to, I think, be that strange exception that district judges of the principal registry of the family division went straight to the high court. My my understanding nowadays is that there might be one of those legacy district judges, one or two left sitting at what is now the central family court, maybe not. Maybe that's wrong, but certainly none of the the contemporary DJs who've been appointed in in recent years fit into that bucket. So the likelihood is your appeal will be in front of a circuit judge. All I would say in answer to this, should you appeal, approach the appeal rather differently according to the level of judiciary, I agree with Chris as as an advocacy style tip, probably best not to. Uh, It's probably best to approach all of your appeals in the same manner and try not to tailor too much to a maybe slightly patronising view of one judge being more with it than another. Um, All I would say is my experience in doing appeals in front of high court judges is that one case management decisions get made very, very quickly and on paper. I've done a recent appeal in front of Mr Justice Moore that I think is being reported. But in that case, several case management decisions were, were made by the judge on the basis of emails from both sides written into him at very, very short notice. And that kind of thing, I I can't see that happening in the Central Family Court. It's just a slower process there. Firstly, that. And secondly, um, it might be the judges at high court level might be more comfortable varying an order there and then, or even conducting a rehearing there and then, which has been my recent experience, although that's that's not a kind of evidence-backed um, uh, assumption there that might be just as common in judges of circuit judge level, though I haven't seen it personally. 
Thank you very much. Chris, you talked a, a bit and in passing when we were talking about the level of, of judge, you, you talked about the number of appeals that are coming out of practice direction 12J, the decision in H&M, <clears throat> and so on and so forth. Do you think that's in, indicative of a, a problem of decision-making, if you like, at the, at the lower levels? And is there anything that needs to be done to just ensure that decisions are made better in the first place and aren't having to be appealed? I, I, I suppose for, for me, as, as somebody who straddles a public-private law-children divide, the period after rehn reminded me quite a lot of 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 how public law had been shaped following the decision of the supreme court in re b and the intervention of sir james mumby in re b s in terms of identifying a, a lack of rigor in in the process of of um approving adoption care plans there have been a large number of of appeals a sort of conspicuously large number of appeals that have been focused on either defective fact-finding processes or a failure to recognise the need for special measures, or in some cases, a failure to follow through on special measures that have been identified as being necessary. I think it's worth remembering that in any system, sometimes things take a while to permeate through, and you have a sort of core of legacy decisions that have been made before some of these more significant changes that have, have been made clear as being necessary by the Court of Appeal or the High Court sort of filter through. So I, I suspect that it is something where we will see fewer appeals of a procedural nature arising from Practice Direction 12J, just because the nature of having those appeals, of having them published, of practitioners becoming more aware, of judges becoming more aware and the emphasis on the fact that the obligation is on all advocates, all participants, and on the court above all. And I think that's where I have been significantly reassured by the approach that's been taken by a number of High Court judges in dealing with PD12J appeals, is that the practice direction is hollowed out in terms of the protection it provides if the fundamental requirement doesn't fall upon the court. If an appeal can be avoided or an appeal fails merely because a practitioner didn't aware didn't raise it a participant didn't raise it then uh, that that protection is is illusory uh, and that's not the approach that the high court bench have taken they have said that these are substantive important protections that the obligation is on the court and they have followed through by setting aside decisions where required but i i do think that that is something that has practitioners generally become more aware of of the requirements and, and obligations and are more familiar with with what is a very comprehensive practice direction that the proper implementation of that will be something that will become more deeply embedded i should say there is a small caveat to that which is that in re hn the court of appeal specifically noted the relative infrequency of successful appeals against fact-finding decisions, though they were appropriately cautious about placing much weight on that, it, it was something that they referred to. I think that there has been a proper acknowledgement that occasionally things do go wrong, and that where that is the case, that an appeal is a justified and reasonable route to take and a proper means by which to, to redress some of those issues. And in a sense, I think it's more comforting that you have appellate judges 
dealing with cases where things have gone wrong, allowing appeals and having things retried properly, than the alternative, which is a very deferential approach to first instance decision making and a situation where either people are unaware that they have an appeal or people don't feel confident to bring the appeal for, for whatever reason. I don't think having an appellate tribunal that's doing the proper job of correcting things that have occasionally gone wrong is something that the family court should be concerned about. I think it is a sign that overall the system is seeking to address and um, bring about a proper set of decisions for children and in the case of financial remedies no doubt for for families more generally you see this is why you respond to the emails around chambers that say someone's coming in for uh, advice about appeal and <laughs> i sit there and try and uh, pretend i'm busy on something else well i um, mean the reality is you, you just don't know where a case is going to come from or when a, or when something is going to end up being important and significant and the only way that you can ever check whether there's merit in an appeal is by reading the judgment i mean if you don't if you don't perform that task you have no idea uh, and and so that's why i think you know there is a real value to having emails flash around or having a service like advocate available or even having judgments published because sometimes people notice things and 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 I had experience of a case where I literally saw a published judgment and got in contact with a silk who I knew had had um, a particular view on, on those types of cases. And we ended up working on the appeal together. You know, these things can come from different sources, but it's partly why I have become an increasing convert to the importance of transparency is that if decisions aren't ever seen, if nobody who has the experience and expertise ever casts an eye over a decision, you can have much less confidence that there isn't something that's gone awry. Okay. All right, Joe. Well, let me tell you again what His Honour Judge Farquhar said in respect of financial remedy appeals when I asked him what was what was creating the issues. And uh, I mean, I I found this a little depressing, but I don't know if it matches up with your experience. He said one of the major issues is people simply getting the numbers uh, wrong. And he made the point that the judges often aren't going to go through and check whether the the figures are correct. um, And they rely on what the practitioners or what the litigants tell them in respect to the numbers. And then he says that appeals can be generated when when people realise the numbers are wrong. So is that something you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. It's something I've seen. I think in terms of in the things that generate financial remedy appeals, uh, to, to go through them in a kind of waterfall frequency order, I, I think... The thing that leads to the most appeals, and by that leads to, I mean it, it generates the most appellate buzz, but it doesn't necessarily lead to an actual appeal being being dealt with, was that old practice where lots of solicitors used to instruct advocates as a matter of course to just ask for permission to appeal if they lost at the end of a trial by default, just because you need to get your foot in the door. And it was almost a hair-trigger response to losing a trial, regardless of what the judgment was. I used to see that done as a matter of course, I don't see it done that often anymore. So I think that's that's probably going out of fashion. That was with regard, no thought given at all to the prospects of a success test. So I imagine that's not really included in his Honour Judge Farquhar's assessment of frequency of these, these kind of things, because, of course, that will rarely actually make it to the full consideration of appeal stage. 
Remaths errors. Absolutely, I agree with that. But it's good news in the sense that I think it's on the decline. And I'll, I'll tell you why. We've got the ES2 now. And I know lots and lots of matrimonial lawyers hate the ES2 and think it puts the brakes on their creative liberties. And oh gosh, now I can't present as I want to. I'm not free anymore. But I remember, well, I remember this was only two years ago. The pre ES2 era, advocates would show up to court with their separate competing asset schedules. Every now and then, someone had the good sense to do a composite schedule, marking up where the differences were. But almost invariably, even if that were done, the parties would have different net effect schedules showing net effects on their own figures, but failing to show net effects on the other party's figures. So a, a judge, and I've got massive sympathy with this, would be swamped, swamped with anywhere between four and six separate schedules. Back in the pre-paperless days, this was all done on paper. So you'd have a judge sitting there with potentially six or seven sheets of A3 asset schedule, often with size 11 font print. And you'd expect that judge to to delve through all of that and spit out at the other end a computationally pure determination of the issues with the correct figures. So in that landscape, I, I think it's absolutely no wonder that maths errors were probably, in my experience, the leading cause of people trying to challenge judgments and saying the maths was wrong. But most of the time, it probably the advocate's fault that the error had happened in the first place, or the party's fault, um, rather than the court's. I think the ES2 has gone a lot of the way to sorting this. And also, I think off the back of the ES2, there's a really good habit that I've seen developing amongst advocates, and most people seem to be doing it these days, is... The ES2 is properly completed and put before the judge in Excel format so the judge can play around with it and and deal with their own net effects. I've seen nowadays when people produce net effect schedules, tends to be they do net effect on my figures and on their figures. And that tends to be done in a relatively intellectually honest way. And although I'm not, I don't do much um, evaluative work, I don't often sit as a private FDR judge. I imagine that this is massively helpful to a lot of district judges, circuit judges and private FDR judges sitting. So hopefully the maths problem issue is on the decline. I had I had two, two other areas that I've found a, a quite fertile ground for appeals. First one, marital agreements, prenups, postnups and the like. Uh, I think they create a massive amount of difficulty for the courts with the state the law is currently in. And the law is not particularly complicated on it. It's actually completely straightforward post Rabmacher. But there is a tension there between an unvitiated prenup that a party would be held to, but for um, it being unfair. And then the needs principle, which is, as we were talking about earlier, quantitatively an area of discretion, um, being able to override an otherwise valid prenup. I, I, as a, it's not really a perfect case study, but I was involved in a case last year that was reported called SC and TC. It was a determination of his honour judge Hess. And the facts of that case were pretty extraordinary. I won't go over them in, in any kind of detail. But the, the conflict in that case was there was a postnuptial agreement in a relatively long marriage uh, in quite unfortunate circumstances that gave my client, the wife, uh, the majority of matrimonial assets. So assets accrued during the marriage. And the nub of it was on appeal. One was all of this fair was the agreement vitiated in the first place. Second, what about consideration of the husband's needs? And this case was really unusual and like nothing I'd seen before, because in this case, there was contemporaneous evidence that came about in an extraordinary way by disclosure of the previous, the husband's previous solicitor's file that showed the husband 
in email communication with his former solicitors saying, look, I know that this agreement won't meet my needs as the family court would assess it. And I don't care. I don't want my needs met. I want to sign up to this agreement knowing that it will leave me with less than the court would assess my needs to be in the future. And the point that I was placing before his honour Judge Hess and was making quite a big deal of was how can we reconcile this? Because, Judge, you will say that what this husband is left with won't meet his needs. But how does that interact with this contemporaneous evidence of the husband agreeing and, and signing up to a package that was less than the court would assess his needs at? Does this not mean that we're just being patriarchal? And I, 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 my position was unsuccessful in that case. The husband ultimately got a 50 percent share. But I think that's an example of a case that's right on the appeal boundary line in that permission to appeal wasn't sought and no appeal was was, was made in relation to that. But it, it's a difficult area to advise a client on because there's a real tension there and it's not black and white and different practitioners would take different views. I spoke to some people afterwards who said, I, I think that's completely outrageous determination and others who thought, well, of course, you're always going to lose that point. How on earth did you expect a husband to be left with less than he needed? So I think marital agreements are a big one. Another big one, pensions. And I have a, a slightly privileged view on this because I sit on the, the pensions advisory group. So I've got an insider view into the process going into that, that there's going to be an updated uh, PAG2 report coming out, I think, this summer. But in my experience, and I, I used to do more pension cases than I do now, Lots of judges are very, very scared of pensions because they can be very, very complicated. In lots of cases, there'll be a report from an expert of what we call a PODE, a pensions on divorce expert, that will give the judge some figures to cling on to. But there are some cases where the recommendations of a PODE report need to be departed from. And to give one example of that, lots of financial remedy practitioners will know what the, the term apportionment means in relation to pensions it's basically the process whereby you try and identify the non-matrimonial portion of a pension and you exclude it from the pension sharing calculations and recently there's been lots of case law about the different methods you can use to do that apportionment calculation there's basically three and one of them is the more straightforward one it's very very easy to get it wrong in pensions when the the commonplace literature is that we're told Pensions are what everyone gets sued over. They're the number one cause of matrimonial negligence. Lots of judges are nervous about them and lots of judges are not quite on top of the technical details of pensions as they might otherwise be. So I have found in personal experience that that has led to probably a disproportionate number of appeals compared with how big that issue tends to feature in cases. Because most of the time people spend much of the time arguing about their liquid assets and the pensions can sometimes be an afterthought, but a more common cause of appeal in my experience. Thank you both. So you've got your 21 days. You are making a very difficult, finely balanced knife edge decision as to whether or not to put in an appeal. And then you turn your mind to the question of costs and you realise that not only have you got to make that very difficult decision in a very short period of time, but there might be serious cost consequences if you get it wrong. Do you want to talk to us about how how that works, I guess, both for the appellant and and the respondent? Yeah, I, I, that's it's that's quite an easy one to, to deal with, actually. In, in looking at it first from the perspective of an appellant, appeals are governed by what we call the clean sheet cost principle, which is that it, the, the rule at 28.3, the no order assumption doesn't apply in appeals. So there can be cost consequences. The clean sheet principle 
it has been described in some of the case law as a soft cost follow the event rule. In my experience, every appeal I've ever done, the loser has been ordered to pay a proportion on a summary assessment. That's almost always how it's ended. Very rarely do you get indemnity basis assessed costs on an appeal because it's quite hard to adopt a very unreasonable position on appeal that would lead to an adverse cost order assessed on that basis. But it's almost always ordered led to a, a summarily assessed cost order. If you are the respondent, slightly different because quite often respondents aren't invited to partake in appeals until at least an appeals got past the permission stage. And the permission stage is a bit complicated because the court can choose to deal with the permission stage in a number of different ways. It can deal with it on paper um, without any representations from the parties, apart from the grounds of appeal. It can deal with that at an oral hearing. Uh, it can deal with an ex parte oral hearing without participation from the respondent. And one thing respondents should be wary of, and there's a, quite a, a full chapter on this in At a Glance, if you are not invited to partake in the permission stage and you choose to anyway and you make submissions, don't expect to automatically get your costs, even if you're successful. On the other hand, if you're invited, you can engage the clean sheet principle and you, you're more likely to get your, your costs properly summarily assessed. Uh, another point, remember that call the backs are admissible in appeals. Lots of people forget that because you, you stop thinking about call the bank offers after the, the proceedings are over in that sense. But because it's a clean sheet cost regime, call the bank offers are admissible. And generally, when I've been involved in appeals, from first instance judgments, I always advise making call the bank offers. It, it makes complete sense because you want some cost protection on an appeal. So, yeah, that's that's the long and the short of it in costs and financial remedy appeals. And I, I think in, in terms of cases concerning children, obviously, it, it's it's governed by quite a different set of principles. There were two Supreme Court decisions, RESVT, which um, effectively determined that in the main, in the absence of unreasonable or reprehensible conduct, you won't have costs orders made against you for participating, whether as as a parent or indeed as a local authority in, in a case concerning children. So to that extent, some of the cost risks that are associated with appealing are lessened. And obviously that also it's also relevant that in certain circumstances you will be for a party that has the benefit of a of a public funding certificate and that can also have an impact i i think it's it's a situation where i i often think that the the biggest determinant is really the the permission stage and that's why as as joe's emphasized the the importance of there being relatively limited provision for respondents to participate at the permission stage is is important because I think on an intellectual level, save in some quite extreme examples, it's difficult to see how an appellant who receives permission to an appeal has a court determining that they have a real prospect of success can be acting in an unreasonable or reprehensible way in pursuing that appeal. The caveat to that, I would say, is is this. I have noted a, a tendency, and I think that's partly because uh, in certain areas, litigation has become more contentious, that there have been some cost decisions, both in private law children cases, but also I, I saw one recently, which flowed from the withdrawal uh, by a local authority of, of public law proceedings, where I think even in the public law arena, there is a greater awareness of of, of cost being something that is at least a theoretical possibility, 
where you have decisions that are upholding costs awards at first instance, then necessarily, particularly given that the costs of appeals can be very high, it is something that that we may well see more of. And so it does always need to be factored into your decision making and, and the advice that you're giving to clients on appeals. They They have to be aware of even those theoretical risks so that they can judge whether to take the appeal on or not. But I, I do think in in general, the regime in relation to, to Children Act cases is is one that that means that there is a, a less onerous burden to be taken by the by the risks of costs. And and in fairness, that probably means that people feel empowered to take appeals on that they might otherwise be be wary of taking on because of the financial consequences that they might face in other areas which probably helps the coherence of decision making but but may mean that more appeals are are run and and whether that's a good or a bad thing is is for other people to judge. Whilst you're speaking then Chris, can you help us with the procedural points that we need to know about children act appeals and specifically I suppose in relation to time limits and when our grounds need to go in, when the skeleton needs to go in? Um, and also when when you should put in a respondent's notice, because that's that's always one that uh, vexes people. It's tied up with getting the transcript of the of the hearing as well, doesn't it? Or the approved judgment that always seems to have a knock on effect in in terms of timing. Yeah, well, so I, I suppose on on a on a on a basic level, as I think Joe's already. Uh, mentioned the the starting point is unless you're dealing with certain categories of interim or case management decisions where the the time limit is is actually seven days you generally have 21 days to put in your appellant's notice um it's worth noting for practitioners that a, a different expectation arises in relation to appeals below the court of appeal and in the court of appeal in the court of appeal the expectation is that your appellant's notice should include grounds and a skeleton argument in courts, um, in the High Court and in the County Court, you're actually entitled to put in your appellant's notice with grounds and seek an extra 14 days for your skeleton argument. So that's something that's worth consideration of, albeit I I have, in my experience, seen that many people assume that the same 14-day additional provision applies in, in the Court of Appeal. It is worth having an eye, obviously, as an appellant to um, the time limit that, that applies, but it is right to say that you are capable of applying for extensions and in cases where that is justified, they can be can be granted. Uh, and particularly once you've got uh, an appellant's notice before the Court of Appeal, if at core you have an important point that, that requires to be tried, it's relatively rare to see the Court of Appeal knocking it out, particularly in dealing with welfare outcomes for children on a procedural basis. So I'm, I'm not saying it's unimportant, it's clearly obviously better to get your appeal in on time and in regular order, but it's not necessarily something that's insurmountable if there are circumstances that have meant it's very difficult. The Court of Appeal and indeed the High Court and probably judges at all levels are consistently infuriated by how long it takes to get transcripts. And that can be a real issue of complexity in even deciding whether to pursue an appeal or not. Because unless you have the official transcript, it can be very difficult to work from a note of judgment or a a, a less coherent, less full summary of of what's going on. So I, I do think that's a real issue. Dealing with it on a practical level can be difficult. I think my best advice there is communicating with the court 
as to the difficulty seeking extensions if you need to, trying to get the court involved in seeking the transcript if you're having real troubles are, are probably the best that I can do. In terms of responding to an appeal, I think um, Joe noted the, the the potential consequences of of involving yourself too early in appeals in certain circumstances. As a respondent to an appeal, I think it can be important that you make use of a facility to um, be involved at, at an early stage, if at all possible. There are obviously very significant benefits for a respondent in ensuring that there isn't an erroneous permission decision that is only flushed out when they have the chance to respond to the full appeal. So there are provisions within the rules, certainly if you're um, in an appeal to the Court of Appeal, there is specific provision for a respondent statement. And where those are permitted, I think there certainly is a strong incentive in ensuring that your voice, your take on the case, your support for the judgment at first instance probably is before the court so that that permission decision can be a balanced one and can take account of of the of the totality of, of the situation on the case. I might just chip in there on, on that exact point. I completely agree with, with Chris's point about uh, as a respondent, thinking carefully about the point at which you want to participate in an appeal and thinking carefully about whether or not it's advantageous to you to participate sooner rather than later. And even if you haven't been invited to participate in the permission process, uh, it's a good point to highlight a, a quite atypical, it's a bit obscure, um, a quite obscure route that a respondent can participate in an appeal at an early stage, which is there's a court of appeal case called Jolly and Jay that enshrines a procedure where a respondent can put in written submissions at the point, very early on, at the point even where uh, an application for permission to appeal has just been made on paper and where that's being considered on paper, a respondent can get in uh, written submissions if, in two circumstances, one, if there's a material inaccuracy in, in the papers before the court, or two, if they're addressed only to the point that the appeal will not meet the threshold test, which is exactly what Chris was just saying. If you are a respondent and you think, well, this appeal is, is shouldn't get off the ground at all, and it's really important that a court has our points as to why the threshold test isn't met at the earliest possible stage, a Jolly and Jay written submission can be quite useful. In my experience, it's been very, very useful in a case I did a long time ago where a litigant in person was pursuing an appeal and they put in their grounds of appeal and their grounds of appeal were just completely inaccurate, completely misleading, complete mischaracterization of the proceedings below. And it was really important that we got in the, the, the counterfactual as soon as we could. Uh, and in those circumstances, the Jolly and Jay submission was, was, was pretty useful. So, so I'd add that to, to Chris's point about participation at an early stage. I mean, I, I think also coming at it as a as a children act practitioner, one of the critical decisions that you always need to think about in appealing, particularly where there are factual findings that have significant consequences for um, how an uh, how a contact regime will will operate, or a decision to place a child or to remove a child uh, in an interim separation application, is what you're doing about staying the decision at first instance uh, and of course for an appellant it can often be incredibly important to try to stay that decision for a respondent and I think it's part of the reason why uh, I think you have to think very carefully before taking a completely passive approach and it's it's sometimes worth being proactive is that 
once that permission gateway has been um, cleared and once you are on the train to having your appeal hearing, that sometimes means that a court has to intervene to stay something. It has to acknowledge the potential risk that the first instance decision is wrong. And therefore, it might interfere with the resumption of contact. It might change a decision as to um, changing the where a child is, is to live principally, or it might change whether a child is removed into care. So responding to a, appeals and ensuring that that permission decision right is, is right can have consequences that that operate in the real world in terms of how a child is looked after, how they're protected in the interim and what the arrangements are for them. So I, I do think that probably inclines me to, to say, as, as I think Joe was saying, that sometimes it's better to stick your oar in than to, to sit quietly by. I think in terms of procedure, um, I would just add a, a couple of points to, to what Chris has said, which mostly it applies equally really to, to the financial remedy sphere as well, everything as Chris has said, because of course appeal procedure is, is aligned. Actually, I'd, I'd add three things, three kind of procedure tips. Firstly, remember that if there is a hearing listed to determine permission, one, that hearing might expressly be listed as a combined permission appeal hearing, where permission and appeal will be dealt with in a rolled up way. My experience, that is becoming increasingly common in financial remedies cases, just for, for listing convenience and because it's a streamlined way of dealing with cases. So you need to be attending those permission hearings, even actually, in my experience, if they're not listed as a combined hearing, but they've been given, let's say, a two, three hour time estimate, you should be attending those hearings ready to deal with the entire appeal just in case the judge decides to do so. And they've got pretty big latitude to do so because, of course, they're exercising their overriding case management jurisdiction and they need to get these cases done in a proportionate um, way using a proportionate degree of court resources. So be ready for that. A similar point, at the substantive appeal hearing, let's say that, that permission has been granted. If you are actually for either side, for the appellant or for the respondent, remember it's it, things that can happen at the appeal hearing. It's a review hearing, but the court can, in very, very rare circumstances, hold a rehearing. That's very, very unlikely, and it probably won't be sprung upon you unless it's just a case management decision. It can set aside the order made, and most of the time, when, when you speak to practitioners, that's what they expect to happen. They expect if they win an appeal for the order to be set aside. But remember, the appellate court can also vary the order. And what that means for you as a practitioner is you need to attend a substantive appeal hearing ready. If if an appellant wins and an order is set aside, you need to be ready to advocate for what you say the correct answer is to the case. You don't want to be caught in a position where you as appellant are successful on your appeal, but you then have to argue a position in front of a, a, the appeal judge who's then saying, well, OK, that answer was wrong. What is the right answer? Because I need to deal with this here and now. And that's happened to me quite recently in, in a the, the appeal I mentioned earlier, that was an appeal on the basis of procedural irregularity, Mr Justice Moore went on to determine the whole thing afresh. He varied the order and heard submissions on, on what the correct answer was. Um, so that's another thing. It, it really helps be ready for that rather than attending just ready to challenge the decision and, and nothing else. Uh, the third point, this is, it, it's, it seems like a really dull and obvious point, but I encounter it day in, day out in various contexts. Remember, you don't automatically get to adduce fresh evidence on appeal that's materialised since the original proceedings have finished. There is a test. It's the Ladd-Marshall test. You need to make an application to court to adduce the fresh evidence. The Ladd-Marshall test, I, I 
think it's either a three or four stage test. I'll be corrected. I think it's a three stage test, but it's a high threshold. Uh, it's a difficult threshold to meet. So if you want to reduce fresh, fresh evidence, you need to direct yourself to the ladder Marshall test. You need to read the case law. You need to think very carefully about whether or not that, that application has good prospects of success. But don't, whatever you do, make the mistake of just assuming that you can reduce your fresh evidence on appeal. Observed more in the breach, in my experience, but um, worth bearing in mind. Do you have a couple of closing tips for us, Chris? I suppose my my overall comment when you're landed with a, a potential appeal is is to try as as far as possible to take a breath, take a beat, and not get overly concerned about the fact that it's not something you encounter day to day. On occasion, uh, and probably frequently, if you're dealing with the higher courts, uh, appeals are uh, an incredibly important way of progressing the law in a in a common law system of writing things that have gone wrong in cases at first instance. And so they are an incredibly powerful and important tool in making sure that the family justice system as a whole works well and works better in the future. Uh, And on occasion, they simply are the most interesting cases that you will encounter. I I would say, and this may sound uh, incredibly sad, but practitioners now benefit from the chance to see not only appeals live streamed in the Supreme Court, but an increasing number of family appeals in the Court of Appeal, which are available live streamed on YouTube and available for perusal afterwards. They often uh, include advocates who are exceptionally good arguing cases that are exceptionally difficult. It is probably the best way to see how appellate judges approach their task. Um, And certainly for students, for practitioners, they can be an incredibly valuable tool. Do you spend any of your spare time watching them, Joe? I was just going to chime in. This is I, I, this is not, I promise this isn't a humble brag or an obnoxious last salvo from me, but I've, I've recently had the massive, massive, massive privilege of going to the Supreme Court in a financial remedies case called Hassan and all Hassan, which is going to be deciding a, a relatively niche, but potentially very, very important point of law as to whether or not a part three MFPA claim can survive um, an applicant or respondent's death. And with the respondents in that, I made the mistake of watching that back on the Supreme Court stream afterwards. I wasn't doing any advocacy. I was just sitting there and I could get a good glimpse of back of my head for some of it and my horrified slash shocked facial expressions for other parts of it. But I wouldn't recommend it if you appeared in it. It's a harrowing experience. <laughs> All right. Well, on that bombshell and that insight into what happens in our personal lives, I think we'll draw to a close. Thank you both for your insights in respective appeals. And to our listeners, if you like what you're listening to, please remember to leave us a review.